0: I am Plant on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia, at thecommentary.ca. John Ibbotson joins me again. He's just published one of the more fascinating books of the season, The Duel, Diefenbaker-Pearson and the Making of Modern Canada. It looks at uh, not only the political careers of John George Diefenbaker and Lester Bowles Pearson, Canada's 13th and 14th Prime Ministers, respectively, but how they came to public life. They'd uh, come from similar backgrounds, born in the late 19th century in what was uh, called the Dominion of Canada. Diefenbaker has a fierce loyalty to England and Empire, while Pearson evolves and realizes uh, later in his career that to be uh, taken seriously as a country, Canada needed to develop a stronger sense of self. We see how they uh, come to politics and the issues that divided them, but also the fundamental views they shared. What Mr. Ibbotson has done in the book is uh, give the reader a sense of uh, the men and their times but also how they react to the change in Canada. One adapts as the country changes, that's Mr. Pearson, while one doesn't, that's Mr. Diefenbaker. What uh, John also does is reframe how both men are seen. Diefenbaker is seen in history as somebody who squandered the largest majority uh, or who screwed it up badly, while Pearson was seen as able to get uh, a lot done despite a minority uh, I'll also get uh, John to give us a sense of the personal feelings each man had for each for the other. And I'll ask John about the Canada of today versus that of just over 50 years ago when these uh, two men were engaged in a fight for how each saw the future. John Ibbotson is writer-at-large at the Globe and Mail, a position he's been in since 2015. Before that, he served as Washington Bureau Chief, Ottawa Bureau Chief, and Chief Political Writer. He's uh, co-authored Empty Planet and the Big Shift with Daryl Bricker and the best-selling and award-winning biography of Canada's 22nd Prime Minister Stephen Harper, aptly titled Stephen Harper. This uh, new book is published by Signal, which is an imprint of McClelland and Stewart. John, joined me from Ottawa last Thursday. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online Program, John Ibbotson. Mr. Ibbotson, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, John, how did you come to write this book? Because at the same time as I'm reading it in 2023... It seems like the right time to go back and look at these figures that that, um, that at one point figured so prominently in the national consciousness, but, but somehow have been forgotten, haven't they?
1: They have. Um, and in particular, I had become increasingly convinced over the years um, that the narrative about John Diefenbaker and Lester Pearson was wrong and needed to be uh, addressed. The narrative that you and I grew up with was, John Diefenbaker Baker took the biggest majority government in history and threw it all away. Right. He was indecisive. He was paranoid. He was untrusting. And his government stumbled from one disaster to another disaster until finally uh, Lester Pearson uh, defeated him in the 63 election and gave us Medicare, gave us immigration reform, gave us the pension system, gave us the flag, and all these other good things. But that was the conventional wisdom. Uh, but uh, in my decades in journalism, I found, I kept coming across things, oh, uh, that immigration reform is actually on Diefenbaker's watch. Oh, mm. that healthcare reform is on Diefenbaker's watch. Oh, that justice reform, that was Diefenbaker. Um, and I became convinced that in fact we, need, we needed to look uh, at this decade again. And not to diminish Pearson in any way. He he had many accomplishments. But perhaps to put uh, Diefenbaker in a more appropriate light. Uh, and also, it was just, such a good story, right? We have never had this before in our uh, history, and we've never had it since, where the leaders of the two national parties just fought it out, election after election, after election, after election, and on the floor of the House of Commons, um, uh, this enormous feud, this duel, yeah. um, uh, that that defined the politics of the time, but nonetheless got so much accomplished, got, got so much achieved, such that by the time... Um, here, Trudeau came in 68, they had created the foundations of the society that we live in today.
0: And that's the thing that I was, as I was reading the book, that, that um, I was thinking about, where the, the, there are contemporary lessons here. Um, like, when we think about what this country is today, and you, 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 I'm talk, you're in Ottawa, I guess, this morning. Um, I'm in Vancouver. Um, th- there was a time when, how... Canadians viewed this country was probably, you know, in the same sort of vein. I mean, slight changes. I mean, that's the the same thing about Pearson and Diefenbaker. Um, I kept thinking about where we're headed and how different their time was. Were these things that that you were thinking about as you were writing the book as well? It
1: was certainly something that i meditated on over the four years that I was working on the book. Um, It it struck me um, that there was such a deep consensus in the 40s and 50s and 60s about where Canada should go. Um, this was uh, a country that had fought and helped to win the Second World War. In the post-war years, it literally invented the middle class, the suburb, the cars, built the freeways, uh, built the international airports, built the St. Lawrence Seaway. It was a country that got things done. And it was a country in which the liberals and the conservatives, by and large, saw things the same way. Big government had won the war. Big government had won the peace. Big government should do more. And it, it should do more by helping out uh, that ever-expanding middle class. What does that mean? Well, that meant help uh, with health care. That meant creating a, a huge new uh, public education system. Uh, it meant welfare supports. It meant uh, an industrial strategy. It meant all of these things and more. And so while Diefenbaker and Pearson were fighting it out, um, and creating this tremendous decade-long political soap opera, their governments were piece by piece implementing all of those major reforms uh, that, as the subtitle says, gave us the modern Canada we, we live in today.
0: So, what's at risk then in the immediate future when it comes to th- these these uh, shared values that we once had, and where we're headed?
1: I think, I mean, it's, it's, and this is happening everywhere. It's not just in Canada, and in mm-hmm. fact, in most places, it's far, far worse. Mm-hmm. But we are seeing a political polarization underway. Uh, we're seeing um, a, a lack of coherence and a lack of trust in, in the major institutions, in our government, in our public service, in our schools, in our media. Um, and the undermining of that public trust, that, uh, the undermining of those shared values, threatens, um, first of all, just to cause deep divisions in society, and second of all, to make it harder and indeed maybe impossible for us to do the big things that need to get done in our day as opposed to their day um, and uh, the risk, in fact, you know, polarizing and, and freezing up, as it were, um, our, our own society. I don't think, as I said, it's, bad, it's nearly as bad here as it is elsewhere, but it certainly is different now than it was back in the 60s when Baker and Pearson were in charge.
0: Indeed. Um, what's fascinating, you, you set out at the beginning of the book to, to talk about how um, similar these two men are. And then, so, as we read in the book, how dissimilar they become um, in in terms of their background and what shaped them. Um, what are the things that, that that they had in common? Say, I mean, they they were born, I guess, in the Victorian era, so so those sort of ideals were th- those were imbued in their their personalities, right?
1: Exactly, and this was another element of the book. I wanted not just to tell the story of the prime ministerships of John Diefenbaker and, uh, and Lester Pearson, I wanted to talk about the way in which their life reflected the evolution of the country itself. So, as you said, they were born in small town, Ontario. Queen Victoria was on her throne. Um, Canada was not uh, by any means uh, a sovereign country. We were barely more than a colony, just been granted self-government. And this, uh, the, uh, Pearson was the son of a preacher, Diefenbaker the son of a teacher. Uh, but Diefenbaker's signing went out west and became, uh, you know, helped to break the prairie sod, um, and um, they moved from that point on in different directions. And again, as they evolved, the country evolved, Diefenbaker watched Saskatchewan and Alberta uh, achieve provincehood. He also heard the resentments of the people there who believed that they were being exploited uh, by the merchants and by the industrialists uh, of, the, of central Canada. Pearson, in the meantime went off to uh, well they both went off to war but why neither of them fought is I'm not going to tell you the story but it's an amazing story yeah. uh, how they didn't fight in the war uh, but then Diefenbaker became a lawyer a crusading lawyer Diefenbaker for the defense the man who uh, took uh, the side of people who would never get a fair trial if, if otherwise uh, Pearson in the meantime uh, went into the brand new Department of External Affairs because Canada now was achieving control over its foreign policy, had a, a meteoric rise, became internationally renowned as a diplomat, as a peacemaker, won the, the Nobel Peace Prize for this, during the Suez crisis. Diefenbaker got into the House of Commons, but was quickly alienated from the leadership of his party because he was a prairie populist and the Tory party was all about banks, uh, Bay Street and, um, and big business um, and losing elections. Uh, but at the end, there they were, leaders of their party, Diefenbaker Prime Minister, then Pearson Prime Minister, fighting over whether Canada should accept uh, nuclear weapons on its soil. They were born in small town uh, Ontario, under Victoria, as they fought over the nuclear weapons of the age.
0: Yeah. It's a marvelous arc, and, and, and ideal for, for the story that you tell in, in the book, um, Diefenbaker has always fascinated me because, he, as I was saying just before we started, how odd he was, um, and, and odd for somebody who would become a politician. He wasn't comfortable in his own skin, and, and that was shaped early on, wasn't it?
1: It's absolutely true. Um, and this is where the two men were so, so different. Uh, Diefenbaker's last name um, made him suspect. Uh, mm. It's going to be very hard for a lot of people to believe this, but a German name was uh, the Handicap. Um, in Victorian and Edwardian Canada, um, and he was uh, the family struggled uh, to make ends meet, and he resented um, the rich kids and the tops who who taunted him and bullied him, uh... this left him a solitary figure. I think it's it's telling that Deepen Baker's great passion in life was fishing, which is something you did alone or with one or two friends. Uh, Pearson was a team player, whether it was hockey or baseball or anything. He was a real chalk, and so Deepen Baker always was on the outside looking in, even when he was in his own party, mm-hmm. and even when he became leader of the party, yeah. because the elites of the Conservative Party um, had, did not want him to become leader and uh, did not trust him, and he, and he did not trust them. And it, and it bred a, a paranoia that, uh, that diminished him as a person, and, but in the end did not diminish the achievements of his government as much as some people at the time thought.
0: Um, there's a story in the book, uh, and, and I've heard the story in the past about um, Diefenbaker as a boy meeting Sir Wilfrid Laurier. In your research, did you figure out if that was true?
1: Well, some facts are too good to be true, aren't they, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, there's a statue to that meeting uh-huh. uh, uh, in in, in, the, in Saskatoon, and um, the story, in case others didn't hear it, was that Diefenbaker was a paper boy. And Laurier was standing outside his train taking the morning air, and they got into a, a conversation. And the boy, Baker, said, I can't stand, stay on and talk to you anymore, Prime Minister. I've got work to do. <laughs> uh, and off he went. And Laurier told, uh, allegedly told this story um, at, at the next rally that he was attending. Yeah. Um, but, uh, there, there is no um, documented basis for the story, let's put it that way. But um, we all choose to believe it, and why not?
0: It, it, it says something that Diefenbaker would tell a prime minister, who was who he, he claims was interested in him and his work as sell, selling newspapers. That is, um, that he had to go, and and leave the guy hanging there. You know what I mean?
1: But of course, Diefenbaker told a great story. Yeah. And um, as we say, sometimes those stories were even true. Um, I mean, one of my favorite moments in the entire book, if you'll forgive me, is the Lucien Ravard scandal. One of the things I realized and learned as I was working this book that we have lost the art of the scandal. We just don't do scandal anymore the way they did it back <laughs> then. Great, wonderful, rollicking scandals. And my favorite was, was was the Rivard affair. So Lucien Rivard uh, was this uh, mobster, and he was in jail in Montreal. The Americans are trying to extradite him on heroin charges, um, and the lawyer representing the Americans is summoned to Ottawa, and he sat down and told that it would be. The government would, well, certain people in the government uh, would be very grateful um, if the council did not oppose releasing Lucia Rivard on bail. And the lawyer said, Why on earth would I not oppose that? You'll skip the country if he's allowed out on bail. And they said, Well, nonetheless. And he said, Well, why? And he said, Well, you know, Mr. Rivard has been very generous to the Liberal Party in the past. And we have reason to believe he might even be more generous to the P- Liberal Party uh, if he were released on bail. And by the way, there will be several thousand dollars and some government contracts in it for you uh, if you agree. So the lawyer didn't take the money; he went straight to the RCMP. there's a huge investigation, and it's all spilling out on the floor of the House of Commons. And there's, uh, you know, commissions are being appointed, yeah. the opposition is having a field day. Meanwhile, Rivard um, asks to go out and water the skating rink one day in March uh, when it's unseasonably warm, and then takes the uh, hose and, and uses it to escape from the prison where he now is running around the country, sending letters off to the media and to, and to Pearson himself, saying what a fine time he's having. And meanwhile, Diefenbaker, in crowded halls, says, you'll forgive me if I, I take off my jacket. Why, it's almost as warm in here tonight as it was when Lucy and Brevard went out to water the skating rink. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's a funny line that you throw in the book. Um, uh, this is after um, the Monsinger affair comes uh, to light. Um, because uh, Pearson's always pressured, it seems, to to have a commission of sorts, and and um, uh, you, you throw in this line about uh, there weren't enough judges at some at one point yes. for. <laughs> well,
1: and again, I'm, I'm not making that as a serious assertion, yeah, but it felt yeah, like yeah. Uh, yet another revelation. Yet another, and of course, Diefenbaker was a politician. He loved. Um, being, you know, up in front of a crowd. He himself might have been a bit insular and, and insecure, but he loved the crowd, and he loved the to main street, and he loved to talk to people, and people loved to talk to him. The, uh, Pearson never really was comfortable as a politician. He always said, I was a diplomat, never a politician. And so, uh, D.P. Baker could really get under Pearson's skin, and as these scandals came out, one after the other after the other, uh, Diefenbaker Baker is having the time of his life. Frankly, I think he enjoyed politics far more as an opposition leader than he did mm-hmm. as the prime minister. But in any case, he's having the time of his life on the floor of the Commons, and Pearson is just hating it because all he wants to do is get get his you know legislation through, get his beloved flag legislation passed, and instead he's trying to explain how Lucy Rivard R- 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 was allowed out to water the skating rink, or um, you know what the, the great German spy Gerda Munsinger, who as it turned out passed the, uh, the conservative cabinet, yeah. and yet somehow, somehow Pearson managed to make it so that the goethe Munzinger scandal damaged his government more than it damaged Deacon Baker.
0: Yeah, that's another fascinating thing that you write in the book about about that incident, and, and how all this seems to play yeah. out on the floor of the House of Commons, doesn't it?
1: In the day when the House of Commons was the place to be. Yeah. Um, ironically, the advent of television destroyed the House of Commons. You have now the 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 circus of question period. Um, But back then, uh, you had to actually go to the House to see what was going on. And you had great parliamentarians, great speakers, great real debates. You weren't allowed, for example, to take notes into the House of Commons. You had to actually speak uh, on your feet without notes. And that made for much better debate in the House. You just didn't bring in talking points that had been sent to you by the PMO. So uh, there was journalists spent long hours in the House listening to the debates and reporting on them. And that made the House far more important then than it is now.
0: Well, what's what's also interesting in the book is is, um, we see, obviously, how likable Pearson is, but um, how he evolves throughout the book, and and, and that's how he evolves in his life. I mean, unlike Diefenbaker, who who, uh, doesn't change, Pearson does evolve, doesn't he?
1: He does, and it's, it's a great difference between them. Um, Baker, as, as I said in the book, the difference between the two of them was that Pearson had the capacity to grow and Baker didn't. So Diefenbaker uh, always fought to preserve Canada's place within the British Empire, not understanding or accepting that the British Empire didn't exist anymore. He wanted to diversify trade, which was actually a very good idea. But he wanted to diversify trade within the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. Well, Britain uh, was actually trying to get into what we now call the European Union. It didn't want to have a trade with the Commonwealth. It was actually trying to loosen its ties to, to the Commonwealth. Um, Pearson understood that the British Empire was in decline. He understood that the United States uh, was the, the new Rome and that Canada had to accommodate itself to this great new colossus next door. They also realized that Canada had to um, have a stronger sense of its own nationality um, uh, as an independent player uh, if it was going to uh, make its way in the world. And that's why he was so passionate about the flag. And it's why Baker hated the flag so much. Mm. Diefenbaker wanted that Union Jack on the flag, whatever it took. And Diefenbaker and Pearson said, no, we have to have a new symbol because the maple leaf is our symbol. Um, and again, they fought it uh, for half a year. Ethan Baker wept when the maple leaf uh, flag was finally uh, hoisted parliament above, and, my, above par- Parliament yeah. Hill.
0: And there's that story at his funeral, how the uh, both flags were on the casket.
1: That's right, the red ensign and the and the maple leaf.
0: And he insisted One that final the yeah. final figure
1: towards Pearson. <laughs> um,
0: I always wondered, you know, throughout all this this, this trucker convoy nonsense in, in in recent years, why the red ensign wasn't their symbol rather than the maple leaf. I mean, it just made sense historically, right?
1: Although there would be very few people who would know what the red end means mm-hmm. anymore. You know? How many Jetsets would not would recognize the red end? But, you, you know, you're right. One of the sad things about January 6th, and the sad thing about the convoy, um, was the appropriation of our national symbols by people who most of us uh, don't think should be waving that flag and aren't the patriots that they claim to be. Indeed.
0: Um, the, the, um, you alluded to this a moment ago, John, about... Um, uh their experiences in, in the First World War. Um, I, I'm not going to give away what you write in the book, but, but I think that's a fascinating um, entry point in terms of, of how you did your research because um, you, in Diefenbaker's case at least, you, you look at his memoir, um, you look at uh, a diary that he had, and then you look at the official records. And so when you, when you look at both Diefenbaker and Pearson in terms of how reliable their memoirs were, what did you find in your research? I mean, when, when you're telling their story as, as uh, clearly as you do in the book, um, there, there are gaps,
1: there, aren't there? Uh, it's not, uh, there's, there aren't any serious gaps, but I have to uh, rush out here and, announce, and remind you, uh, remind everyone, um, I was drawing, among other things, on the two fine, fine biographies uh, mm-hmm. of uh, Pearson uh, by John English, and David uh, Diefenbaker by Dennis Smith. So they they had done the groundwork for me. Also, um, I started working the book in the summer of 2019, and of course, I'd barely gotten started when COVID hit. So I didn't have access to archival materials. I had to write the first draft uh, based on secondary sources and interviews. Although, you know, frankly, uh, Google at its best can pull up much of the archival material that uh, you used to have to go and find. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, so what I did was I completed the first draft. Identified holes, uh, I, and anyway knew I had to go to the, to the Deacon Baker Archives in Saskatoon, and did, and rummaged around in there for a while, and then found material on Pearson here in Ottawa. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the the book draws on primary and archival sources, but I want, and as I say in the acknowledgements, the neither English's nor Smith's books were ever very
0: far from my side. So, in terms of how they uh, r- recounted their own. Life stories. Um, do you find that they're reliable narrators? Say,
1: the um, maker is entirely unreliable, <laughs> <to be said. laughs> um, and Pearson is um, uh, more reliable. But here you have a case of more of gaps than of anything else. And and tragically, uh, Pearson really only finished the first volume of his mm. three-volume memoirs uh, before he died of cancer. His son and associates. Uh, put together the second and uh, third volume from uh, Pearson's Notes and from other sources. But the first volume is a delight to read. It's actually a joy because it's full of uh, Pearson's self-deprecating wit. The second and third volumes are really more of a slog. Hmm.
0: they marriages. Um, let's begin with, with Mr. Pearson and, and his marriage to Marion. Um, she, she comes off in the book as, as often... Um, astute and, and and funny i've i've read about her in other places and and found her to be amusing um, what was the, their marriage i mean was it particularly close i mean there were affairs at one point right
1: both Stephen Baker and uh Pearson likely had affairs um, in Diefenbaker's case it was likely uh during the second world war in London and during the blitz um you know it, that was a crazy time um, and and wives were far away mm-hmm. and uh, and things happened and it is uh, as likely that, um, that Pearson had an affair with the, with a friend when he was in England. Um, and by the way, George Grant Laments for a Nation, um, which savaged Pearson, was in part um, based on the fact uh, that Grant uh, was in London at the same time, knew what Pearson was doing, and thought he was acting like a cat. Mm. So there was some personal animus there as well. Diefenbaker's first wife, Edna, uh, it was a a marriage based on love, but it had very very difficult periods. Um, and Edna uh, went through some uh, some hard uh, struggles. Um, and it is probable in that time as well that Diefenbaker, uh saw um, Olive Freeman, who became the second Mrs. Diefenbaker after Edna Diefenbaker passed.
0: So, so you do, uh, as you write in the book, that that they had known each other prior to Edna's death, right?
1: Yes, that's right. They'd known each other uh, back in Saskatchewan, but Olive was uh, too young um, and moved away. And then uh, many years later, um, uh, uh, they saw each other again, and it appears that they may have started to see each other romantically um, in the last year or two of, of Edna's life.
0: I, I talked to Patricia Pearson one time. This is the granddaughter of Lester Pearson. Um, I talked mm-hmm. to her a couple of times for her books. And in, in one book where she talks about depression... Her own, um, she suggests in the book that that her her grandmother might have been depressed, and that's why probably she was so cutting towards um, Lester Pearson. Um, did, 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 what did what were you able to, to say surmise about their relationship?
1: Yeah, I tried to keep away from uh, psycho- psychoanalysis. It's not it's not my skill, and, and again, it's it's not based on um, uh, on on, on course, or personal observation. Uh, there was there were a lot of people who did not like uh, Marilyn Pearson and uh, a lot of people who uh, thought that she was a, a difficult woman um, she could be very cold uh, and and yes her, her, her uh, Patricia did say that she could be uh, a hard a hard mother um, but I think in the end Lester uh... and uh, you know Mike and Marilyn Pearson um, loved each other and and uh, were committed to each other and committed to their family, and certainly were, uh, they seem to get closer uh, towards the end of, the, uh, of their lives uh, than during the peak years. When it has to be said, um, Mike Pearson was often away on the road and uh, leaving his wife alone.
0: Um, Diefenbaker Baker and and uh, I mean I, I touched on this a moment ago, but his how uncomfortable he was w- with people, yet on the campaign stump. Um, he was wildly popular, and as you document in the book, uh, particularly the 1957 campaign, how electrifying that was. And I love the line in the book that even Dalton Camp was in love with him at that point. Um, uh, what was this, this this connection that he had with with Canadians, especially people from the West?
1: Yeah, it really has to do with an exploration of the nature of populism. Populism is a word that's much in our tongue these days. Mm-hmm. Um, Diefenbaker was the first, uh, and only thus far, a populist prime minister. Um, a prime minister who really felt um, a connection with the common folk, as he used to call them then, or the little guy that Doug Ford uh, uh, calls them today. Um, but it was a populism rooted in genuine connection. Diefenbaker grew up poor. Uh, he, he was a, uh, on, a, on a failing farm, surrounded by other farms, some of which were failing. He saw the way in which the bankers and the merchants um, you know, put down uh, the working man and the working farmer. Uh, and uh, as a lawyer, he represented people uh, who no one else would represent. His populism, if you want to call it that, is rooted in sitting in a jail cell while a sobbing woman explained why her baby had died and she had buried her baby without telling anyone that uh, the baby had died, uh, as, uh, as a wife explained to her that she had to kill her husband because she was certain her husband was going to kill her, um, or tried to keep um, a man from the gallows who had the assessmental capacity of a child. Um, Diefenbaker uh, knew these people, grew up around them, and they recognized that in him. Um, and and there was a bond that formed, I believe, between the, the common folk and Diefenbaker um, uh, that was mutual and that was genuine. And uh, that, and he never forgot that bond, and, and they knew it, and they stayed with him uh, right through to the very end. And uh appears had many, many achievements and uh, skills, but he didn't have that. And I don't think any politician has ever had it since. Um, and the, so when we talk today about Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, and whether he will be uh, prime minister, and if so, whether he will be Canada's second prime minister, the question for Mr. Polyev, I don't have an answer yet. The question is, is his populism rooted in that strong commitment for um, the, the common folk, or is it just rooted in resentment of elites?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Quebec, um, I, I'm curious to know, John, um, had um, in their times, both uh, Baker and Pearson, Quebec seemed to... Um, have a place in in the national government and and um or, or at least separatism or, or sovereignty was not as uh, i mean it, it's beginning i guess in these times D- do you think if they had done uh, either of them something different it wouldn't have come to the fore later on say certainly by 1970 the way it, it, it turned out
1: i'm not sure there's anything those two could have done because the movement was just getting underway um, so the Quiet Revolution began uh, in the 1960s, as you know. Um, it was something that Pearson understood, but Baker did. Mm-hmm. Again, this, this reflects Pearson's ability to grow. Um, now, uh, you know, Baker introduced Hamiltonian's translation into the House of Commons. Um, uh, he he you know, respected uh, Quebec and its place within Canada, but in the end, he was uh, always committed to one Canada, that that was his model: one Canada. And one Canada, at its best, of course, meant a, a unitary national purpose. Uh, it was a, it was a thrilling idea, but it failed to recognize that there uh, that Quebec was a distinct society within Canada, with its own language, with its own culture, and that recognition was evolving rapidly in the 1960s. Pearson tried to accommodate it. Um, he launched the Royal Commission on Bilingualism, but. Uh, and by culturalism, the B and B Commission, um, he worked closely uh, with the Quebec government in the crafting of the Canada Pension Plan and the, the Quebec Pension Plan. In fact, basically, he simply grafted the Canada Plan onto the Quebec Plan, uh, which was much superior to the one that Ottawa had come up with. Um, and uh, so he was he was working to that end, um, but it, but it was only when Pierre Trudeau became prime minister in '68 that the, these issues started to come to a head. Interestingly and ironically, um, Diefenbaker and Trudeau got along quite well. Mm. Trudeau had Diefenbaker up to uh, to 24 Sussex for lunch, partly because they both hated Robert Stanfield, the conservative (laughs) leader, um, but also because Diefenbaker had uh, produced the Bill of Rights. um, And although the Supreme Court ultimately voided the power of that bill, it put the rights agenda on the agenda. And Trudeau recognized that it was Diefenbaker who had begun the debate over what are our rights and how do we codify those rights, and how do we put them and establish them and entrench them uh, within our constitution, within our laws, and also Trudeau was closer than uh, to Diefenbaker's notion of one Canada than to the community of communities notion uh, that the Conservatives had embraced and that pretty much we all embrace today mm. uh, of Quebec operating within a United Canada, but with a, but as a distinct society within that within that country. Um, so it. it it was strange to see at the at the end it was it was uh, t- uh, Pierre Trudeau who was saying, you know, John Deavek was my friend because we understood each other.
0: Yeah, um, looking back, was the cancellation of the Avro era was that a mistake? I mean, I, I, I was talking to someone recently, and and the idea that that technology would have been obsolete by very quickly, um, probably. Absolutely. Yeah, so so I mean, d- does he wear this? I mean, he he wears this still, doesn't he?
1: He does, but uh, it's probably unfair. Uh, and again, it's part of the myth, right? The, 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 the myth that a certain Laurentian elites uh, love to embrace was that the Avro Arrow was a magnificent uh, leap into the future and that uh, John Baker for petty reasons, uh, paranoid reasons, uh, or no good reason at all, simply scrapped the plane uh, and destroyed all of the remaining plants and parts of it um, in a fifth of peak and And destroyed with it uh, Canada's hopes for um an aviation industry. none of this is true, none of it is true and the and the most emphatic fact to disprove that is that the Laurent government um in one of its last cabinet meetings, a cabinet meeting in which Mike Pearson would have been present, uh-huh. decided to cancel the Avro Aero program, but to keep it, uh, that announcement secret until after the federal election, which, of course, the Liberals assumed they would win. Mm. Um, and the reason they had decided to cancel the Avro program was that, indeed, it was rendered obsolete literally on the day it was rolled out. Uh, the, the first prototype was rolled out and presented to the public on the day that Sputnik launched. And the launch of Sputnik made the Avro arrow obsolete, because a jet interceptor fighter that would take down bombers coming across the Arctic uh, to, on their way to, um, to attack the United States, uh, were no longer going to be all that useful. Uh, those, those nuclear weapons would be sent by missiles, not by bombers. And in any case, the Americans and the British and the French had already made it abundantly clear they had no intention of buying a fighter interceptor from Canada under any circumstances. They had their own fighter interceptors and they would make themselves and sell for themselves. So there was no market for the plane, and the plane had been rendered obsolete. Uh, the, and the Sainalov government had already made the decision to cancel the program. Diefenbaker got stuck with, it, with announcing it. He did it badly. He did not roll it out well at all. Mm-hmm. And the liberals uh, were right to criticize uh, to, or, uh, Diefenbaker for failing to properly manage the cancellation of the program. But they never criticized the decision to cancel because they knew that that decision was right. But all of these myths about this magnificent plane that the Diefenbaker government had, had destroyed are just that myth. They weren't based in any facts at all.
0: How did you react John to, to the, this recent business about the uh, the interest rates and, and pressuring the, the governor of the Bank of Canada to to say lower them as a couple of premiers in, the, in this country uh, tried to do by letter because uh, I'm, I'm reading the duel and and I'm reading the, the part of the book where uh, uh, Diefenbaker the Baker fires the then governor of uh, the Bank of Canada James Coyne. Um, what did you make of, of what was happening in this country in the last little while say on on that?
1: Well, it, it was, in a way, uh, deja vu all over again. <laughs> but, the, but Devin Baker, I mean, this was the biggest mistake Devin Baker made, uh, and it cost him his government ultimately. He was reduced from a majority to a weak minority in the 1962 election uh, because of his mishandling of the coin affair. Now, in a way, he was right. Uh, James Coyne, the governor of the Bank of Canada, had an approach to monetary policy that was restrictive. The government had a policy that was open. They wanted to pour money into the system to fight unemployment. Coin thought that was a mistake. Um, and, but Coin was at that time a minority opinion. Uh, there were dozens of economists who wrote letters to the government of Canada demanding that Coin be fired because the economic community agreed with the Diefenbaker policies. Of, uh, of expansion, of, of, we could deal with inflation. Let's handle uh, unemployment as the first priority. But Diefenbaker botched it. Um, he could. He uh, he tried to force Coined to quit. Coined wouldn't quit. Um, he then uh, f- tried to fire him. Discovered uh, that he couldn't actually fire him. Tried to have pass the legislation to fire him, but then uh, Pearson had the legislation held up in the Senate. And by the time. Uh, Coin had finally finished testifying in the Senate, and then resigned because now he'd been able to say his piece. Uh, the, the government was in a shambles. Now, ironically, what came out of that were the very principles that we uh, inherited today. Uh, because when the, the, the uh, finance minister Donald Fleming appointed a new governor, they came to an agreement that the, you know they would reach a broad outline on what monetary policy should be, uh-huh. and then they, the government of, and the Bank of Canada would keep their distance. We are now, for the first time, really, it's, well, there was also something in the early 90s, but we're now, for the first time, starting to see some cracks in that consensus. The People saying that the, that the government should direct the bank uh, to alter its uh, its monetary policy by, by not raising interest rates. Um, that would probably be a big mistake. Me, please go back and read the section in the duel on the firing of James Coyne. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's uh, it's interesting how it, uh, things come round again.
0: Indeed, mm-hmm. um, th- th- these two guys hated each other, um, and I'm I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, wh- where was it? Was it was it uh, during the Munsinger affair that, that it really came to head? Because I mean, the, the, even. Marion Pearson was calling him a clown at that point, and, and, and the sort calling Diefenbaker a clown. I keep wondering, could they have gotten a long say at all?
1: Well, they did initially. I mean, when uh, Diefenbaker was an external affairs critic um, and Pearson was uh, external affairs minister, um, P- uh, Pearson sent a note of thanks, because Diefenbaker was supporting Pearson in his efforts to protect a diplomat uh, who was under attack from the Americans who thought he was some kind of Soviet spy. Um, so th- there was respect there, but it, it, w- it doesn't matter who you are. If you had uh, the leader of the Conservative Party and the leader of the Liberal Party fighting it out for a decade on, uh, you know, on the campaign trail and on the floor of the House, they'd come to hate each other's guts no matter what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also happened that Diefenbaker Baker um, was a was a happy warrior when he was uh, going after uh, big game. Big game being the Prime Minister, um, and Pearson was just. Um, in misery through the whole time. I, it was Pearson who really, really hated Diefenbaker. I think Diefenbaker was just having a good time.
0: <laughs> and and um, I, I'm not going to get you to repeat the story at the beginning of the book because I think it's one of the, the, the better stories in Canadian history. Um, but people should pick up the duel just for that, and th- that's the story about uh, Diefenbaker's funeral and, and involves Joe Clark. Um, this is such a fun book, and it's an important book, um because it, it um, reminds us about um, the history that we need to remember. John, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today. Are you working on another book now?
1: Uh, I've got a couple irons in the fire, but uh, let me get back to you in three or four years.
0: <laughs> Congratulations on this one and, and continue good luck with it. Thank you, Joe. I really appreciate it. The book is called The Duel, Diefenbaker, Pearson, and the Making of Modern Canada. It's pub- it is published by Signal, which is an imprint of McClelland and Stewart. John Ibbotson, its author, joined me on the line from Ottawa. In Vancouver, I'm Joseph Plutter.